Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Deplorable Nation. I'm your host, Deplorable Janet, and today I have a fabulous new guest to the show, although he is not new to me. He may be new to some of my listeners. Mr. Paranoid American, how are you, my dear? I'm doing great, and that might be the first time I've been described as fabulous, and I, and I love it. Like, it <laughs> well, you are fabulous. Good. I appreciate like, that. You're fabulous, too. You're not just deplorable. Does it ever make you feel bad that, that uh, <laughs> maybe someone would just look at you and say, oh, that's deplorable Janet? Well, you know what's funny about that is um, I went to uh, an outing, which I shall not name, Um and I had a sweatshirt that a friend had made me that had deplorable Janet on it. And people came up to me in the crowd and they're like, oh, my God, the deplorable Janet. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that was creepy. And people actually knew that name. But it was funny because it's like the backhanded Hillary Clinton comment. But. Uh, deplorables were also used in the military and so kind of like doing the job that nobody else wanted to do so that's kind of um, a really good name for me because I do a lot of that so you know it stuck fabulous but I enjoy you we had the pleasure of doing a roundtable extravaganza together um with the Hush Hush Society and New York Patriot. And I quite enjoyed that. That was our, our first actual meeting. So thank you for joining me today. So Yo, pleasure. thanks for having me on. Likewise, that was an incredible uh, conversation just because, and I think New York Patriot echoed my same thoughts too, where it was like four people just got in a room. No one really knew each other well enough to even know what anyone's i know him really well or, okay, well outside of him i guess and and uh he was kind of saying like the reason i'm here is to make sure that this thing doesn't go off the rails and you guys aren't just like spouting nonsense but ultimately i think we were all coming from it from like hyper rationalist sort of um, mm -hmm. approaches and i don't think anyone came in shooting from the hip talking about uh, pizza pies and you know right. island right off the bat you know we right. got there but it didn't it didn't start there it was a it was a fantastic episode and people quite enjoyed that and uh for any of the listeners that was the adrenochrome round table so it was definitely a good one if you haven't checked it out shame on you you should go back and listen so for people who do not know you my dear tell them a little bit about you and who you are uh, I've, I've been trying to give this one shorter and shorter every time. So the long story short is ex-military, ex-Disney, uh, current slash ex-musician. And now I've been producing, publishing, self-publishing, uh, comic books and children's books and all sorts of entertainment that is specific to conspiracy theory and occult research and like deep long format research presented the way that you'd expect, you know, 90s action figures and cartoons and coloring books to be presented. But <laughs> way of before most listeners time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, and, and that's, I'm trying to kind of like hack nostalgia and then use it not as like a weapon to get you to buy a car where like, you know, they take the old music that you listened to as a kid. And now that you're old enough and you might have enough resources to buy like that minivan or you might want to buy that like sports car. Now you're hearing like your favorite song that you grew up with. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a, a version of weaponized nostalgia. 
And oh, I just, yeah. I kind of see that what I'm trying to do is that same dynamic, but I want you to just go and learn about Jeffrey Epstein, or I want you to go and learn about Adrenochrome. And that's it. You don't got to buy anything. Just like listen to a song or read mm-hmm. a little a silly comic online and then have that be instead of, oh, I'm going to open up a browser and start comparing the stats of these two different cars that I don't need. Now mm-hmm. you're going to pull up a browser and compare the stats between, you know, Michael Aquino and L. Ron Hubbard, maybe. Right. And I think what you do is so unique and it's fabulous. And if people haven't checked out your work, they definitely need to do that. I agree. So, but come on, guys. Come on. So let me ask you, we'll start with your military uh, service. What did you do in the military? I was a computer programmer at first. How although- did I not figured that out. <laughs> I, I trusted my recruiter that I would enter and keep the same career field and just mm-hmm. every, and I'd come out and I'd have like a Microsoft certified degree and all of this. Cause I had kind of screwed myself, not horribly, but I didn't do the best things that I could have done in school to like make me qualify for just like a free pass. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't come from an upbringing with a free pass. My mom was a public school teacher. My dad was a postman. So there was no like trust funds coming in none of that right so the military i i was it was very attractive and it was like oh you're good at computers come come do it with us and you get all this all these cool prizes and you know this fancy so it it wasn't that just you know spoiler alert the the military wasn't quite the way that it was getting uh pitched to me by the recruiter Mm -hmm. and i got reclassified as an mp a a military police because two weeks into boot camp 9-11 happened mm-hmm. uh so it went from like joining during peacetime and just going to get a gi bill and get training to like now you're in the middle of what might be a huge war completely shifted mm-hmm. landscape so turns out they didn't need as many computer programmers anymore and uh they needed somebody that had a top secret sci clearance that could go and watch contractors fix plumbing overseas and like the top secret areas of like a base that was literally where i was headed towards um so uh, without getting into the weeds i i uh we parted on not the best terms me and the military uh we we don't talk anymore uh it's kind of like a you know don't call me i won't call you kind of situation uh so not coming over for dinner or anything it, it wasn't a big chicken dinner if anyone knows what that means i didn't have a big chicken dinner with them but um, there were, there's a few levels that are slightly below that. So we, we left them not the greatest terms. And from there, I immediately started working at a recording studio and doing music for Cartoon Network and Adult Swim and MTV and VH1 and stuff. Um, and I figured that was going to be my next passion. And then I started really wanting to incorporate conspiracy theories and occult research into music. And I thought maybe this is the angle to go with it. And uh, I got disillusioned from that after brushing up and seeing kind of how it, it really took certain uh, mentalities to work in, in that career field, you know, especially mm-hmm. if you want to make it big. Right. I didn't really like that. It was mostly just because I like to go to sleep early. If I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like I'm this like ultra warrior that found like a satanic cabal sacrificing someone. And I was like, no, guys, not for me. I'm out. It was more like everyone wanted to do coke until 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to go to sleep around midnight. Like that was a late night for me. I don't <laughs> want to stay up until 6 a.m. But very often the artists, they wouldn't be in that like that creative flow mode until who knows? Like it might take them doing coke from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Or maybe they had to do it from 2 a.m. to 9 a.m. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like 
but they they have to do lots and lots of coke essentially a lot of the musicians that i was working with and uh it wasn't the, it wasn't the lifestyle i wanted so i left that mm-hmm. and i can understand that and I, <laughs> but i kept that nugget of like wanting to do a creative project that combined like entertainment but also music or something and this occult research and conspiracy theories and it transitioned mm-hmm. Cause I had some of my music placed on adult swim and cartoon network. I was like, man, how cool would it be if I, if I could work on like an actual cartoon, like not just the soundtrack to it, but like the soundtrack and the thing. Mm-hmm. So that started me off on this long path of wanting to make like a, an actual animated cartoon network series. So I coincidentally end up getting a job at Disney worked there for 10 years. And during my stint there, I did everything I possibly could to drive my vision towards like if if this is where i'm at right if i'm sitting next to animators and i'm we've got a foley stage like i'm at the place that you can do the thing um i did everything i could try and make that happen but even with all those resources it takes a lot of freaking money oh to yeah get something like that off the ground at least the vision that i had and there's not a lot of people that are like want to invest in exposing like the mk ultra program with long format <laughs> no research. what <laughs> they're like yeah where where did like where's the oreo commercial fit into this so and that was honestly some of the best advice i got from like some big industry uh like big comedians and writers and producers they were all saying like if this needs to be commercially viable and it's a cartoon it has to be funny it can't bum people out it can't feel like they're learning something and i fought it for the longest time but over time that was the best advice i got Mm-hmm. So here we are today. I still have nowhere near the resources to do an animation, but I've found that doing comic books uh, and doing little pamphlets and even like little action figures and like little songs and stuff, that's way more like bite sizable for me. Like I can do that by myself with very limited resources. So right. here, there we are. There's there's the full story. It may, might have gotten longer since the last time I said it. No, I think that's fantastic because that there's so many facets to that. So when you were growing up, like, did you get in trouble a lot? Yeah. I was going to say, because it's so funny. Almost everybody that I talk to that goes into the military has had some kind of trouble growing up, whether it was, you know, drugs or running in the streets or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, I'm going to go in the military or I'll suggested by somebody to go go in the military to straighten up. <laughs> I mean, there's a very real aspect to that. And it's like like you almost feel like I deserve this. Like I, I need someone to shape me up mm-hmm. uh, in order to do this. And I don't know. I, I think that there might be truth to that, even if it's a little bit of a swindle, like it still is a very good thing. And uh, I'm still glad that I did it. And I probably I might do things differently. Like I but I might still have joined uh, regardless. So did did you uh, have to go like overseas? Because I know a lot of people when they sign up and they're like, oh, we're going to send you to such and such. And then something happens and they don't ever go to where they were supposed to be assigned to. So did you actually wind up overseas? I, I didn't wind up overseas, although it's because I rejected the anthrax vaccine. Like mm-hmm. I'm an OG hipster, you know, right. vaccine denier, you know, like right. it was cool to, to deny vaccines and get kicked out of the military for it. Like right. I was paving new ground there. Um, although I didn't go and make like a big stand and do a big like picket thing and file all the paperwork. I just kind of like 
started scheduling myself for, you know, getting a tooth, you know, getting my tooth mm -hmm. looked at. And then I would go in like, oh, all of a sudden, like my back would hurt. And I kept doing that until they realized that I was putting off getting not just anthrax. There was like a list of them. But I, oh, I remember yeah. when they mentioned this anthrax vaccine, I went right back to the barracks and I searched it online, like anthrax vaccine side effects. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy hell, like, I don't want none of this. Like, this is like this is a, a, a real serious thing that could last way outside my military career. And I remember right. that moment, just like, this is a defining moment. And like, I was, I was too much of a, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't have the fortitude, right. To be like, I'm not going to do this. So I just kind of like, didn't go to it a whole bunch of times until I got <laughs> an LOR and then an L or a LOC. It started with an LOC and then it turned to LOR and then it turned into an article 15 and then it turned into, it keeps morphing and evolving like a Pokemon. Well, and it's a good thing that you didn't get that because a lot of people don't realize that the anthrax vaccine actually changed. They pulled it off the market from what the original was and reformulated it and put it back on the market. And when that happened, most people will tell you that they had like a at least two week period where they were so deathly ill, they couldn't move. It was like they were paralyzed in bed. And so, um, yeah, it does have some very nasty side effects, but something interesting that, um, one of my military friends said was that he thinks that getting the anthrax vaccine actually prevented prevented the spike proteins from the covid shot to take hold anywhere like they had their blood done and there were no spike proteins in their blood at all. So there's always a silver lining. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And I was like, I don't know. Would you, would you trade, you know, like, would you run out and get the anthrax vaccine to no protect way. yourself from the COVID vaccine? No way. No, no way. <laughs> Not even close, man. Yeah. You guys, the military gets experimented on so badly with so many things and, you know, normal people, they're like, oh, my gosh, there are 75 vaccinations on the childhood vaccination schedule. And, and you're like, well, if you go in the military, then you're getting, you know, typhoid and, and anthrax and all these other things that the normal population is never going to get. Well, here, here's another, I don't, this probably doesn't apply anymore, but it applied 20 years ago when I was in the military, at least getting processed then going through um, boot camp and training and everything. Mm -hmm. But whenever, as, lo as long as you got through MEPS, right? Because when you go through MEPS, which is the military enlistment processing center or something, mm -hmm. um, that's where they like make sure that you actually qualify physically and mentally the best that they can at that moment for the, the military at the very least physically. So they'll expose any sort of um, like allergies that you've got or like things that mm -hmm. would make it hard for you to survive in the battlefield long-term. It's just like, it's easier to just not let you come along. If like, if you get stung by a bee and you might die, like, okay, mm -hmm. this isn't for you, you know, go find another job somewhere. It's sort right. of, I mean, oversimplifying that. Um, but that's but, true though. Well, that, I think that level though, but like once you get, beyond maps the ultimate cheat code for me was then now start telling everyone you're just allergic to everything that they want to ask you about so if someone's like i remember this one day there was a form as we're getting processed in and it was like check a box for everything that you're allergic to and i remember like i'm not allergic to amoxicillin or penicillin or any of these things 
but every one of those things was like you're gonna make me take something if i ch if i don't check this box so i just remember mm -hmm. just checking around i'm just allergic <laughs> to everything now magically and that day um when we had to go through everyone did this assembly line where you literally just like take like three or four steps and every time you take a step there's two or three nurses on both sides they're right. just sticking you and it's it's almost like a cartoon like it's literally right. that crazy and you take another step and you get three more and another step and three more and since i had checked all those boxes they just gave me a little vial of pills and everyone was mad they're like how come this asshole doesn't have to get stabbed in his arm like 20 times <laughs> like we did he just gets to take a pill and i didn't even take the pill <laughs> like i just i just palmed it and threw it out so uh you were smart about that <laughs> So do you think that you learned any um, like traits from the military that you still use today? Because, you know, like they're very strict on on how you fold your laundry or how you make your bed or or whatever. Everyone I know that went through the military, no one actually folds their shirts or makes their beds, even <laughs> though like we can make a better hospital corner bed than you ever could. You know what I mean? Right. I don't mean you, Janet, but just like right. in general. Yep. Um, it's also one of those things where like, I've got an uncle that was an electrician his entire life. You go to his house and there's just like wires like taped together and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> You know how to do all this stuff professionally. Um, and there's a lot of people out there that are like that. There's people that, you know, build cars or, or something and like don't have any great ones of their own or all the ones mm -hmm. they've got are just like beaters. And, you know, you can just extrapolate that forever. So I think there's there's that element to it. But also the big ones is that like I know how to sleep standing up if I really have to. That's a, a that really would be one. so weird. I know how to. um in a in a weird way i can i can know how to like make myself not seem like i've got an attitude even if i do or vice versa just on like how i can do facial expressions because when you're getting grilled and you've just got like you know grown men that are looking at like teenage kids and just trying to pick every little like weakness out of them and just mm -hmm. dr drill on it like that's kind of you know, that's what a drill sergeant's kind of doing they're just like drilling you mm -hmm. nonstop. And uh, I think figuring out like, oh, when I do this with my face or when I respond this way or when I do this and like just, you know, the only the the nail that sticks up gets hammered down sort of proverb, right? right. Learning, learning that way and to do it so meticulously and formulaic. And it's not like you're learning some cheat code and you're getting one over on the system. Like that is what the military is training you to do. They're training you to like know how to not have an attitude and just like fit into these little cookie cutter sort of cutouts at first. But I think all that's incredibly useful because uh, being a cookie cutter and standardizing makes it very easy to like interact with society. Although mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that get out of the military and they can't, they don't know how to switch it off or tone it down. Right. They never become a civilian again. Cause there's also this mm -hmm. weird mentality that even took me four or five years to get out of after I left the military where I didn't feel like if I went to the grocery store, like I'm not one of these other people. Like I'm, I'm like a government employee. Like I'm, I'm uh, like owned by the government. I am property of the government. If I get a sunburn, like I might get in trouble because I just destroyed government property. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of different set of laws does something to your mind, I think. But I don't know that. And then also I can, I can wake up without setting alarms. I guess that's the other trick. So do you think that it's purposeful to, um, kind of put you under like a mind control thing like that and then when people get back out they can't 
reassimilate into society? Do you think that's purposeful? Oh, yeah, because the I mean, there's no reason if you're leaving, there's there's no advantage for the military to spend another second on you. It would be like if you were in a relationship, you know, for 10 years and then it it breaks up towards the end um like badly right or you're just mm -hmm. like we're, we're moving ways like you're not gonna like hang around like oh can i you know can i help you a pack can i do i mean maybe maybe it's like super amicable and like your best friends but uh i think it's just like the second <laughs> that you tell the military that you're breaking up and vice versa like that's it like there's no more support there's no more love there's nothing else so evidenced by you know the homeless veterans right i was gonna the say that yeah but that's, you know, I think the creepiest thing that you mentioned was sleeping, standing up. I don't think I've ever seen anybody do that. And and that would probably, <laughs> that would probably freak me out if I did. It's, it's honestly not, it's not that crazy of a thing. And if you look at uh, like all of the Renaissance men, I'll just make, I'll name one, like Leonardo da Vinci is one, but there's many of them that did this, but they actually uh, change their their circadian rhythm um, or like their sleep schedule instead of sleeping like once a day for eight hours or whatever it is some people can do naps well they they took that formula and they broke it up so that they would only ever sleep for like 15 minutes so they just micro napped their entire lives or at least long periods of their lives so they never fully got i guess that rem sleep that i i can't give up i'm not willing to give up right the deep <laughs> rem sleep I, like i really need that but but there's people out there that can just train their cells for decades to just sleep in little like minute increments in these micro naps and i think that in the military like i maybe experienced just like dipping my toe into that pool a little bit because there i legitimately could figure out how to sleep for like three minutes at a time, wake up just enough to like, look around, make sure like I'm not falling. I'm not drooling. Like there's, you know, no, no danger. And then just kind of like black out <laughs> again for another three minutes and then just kind of keep doing that. Um, because there's, there's times when you're just standing in line and waiting for something outside for three or four hours and like no movement, like you're not moving forward. You're like, and you, and you have to just make sure that you don't bend your knees. So here's the tricks to sleeping, standing up. You can't bend your knees. Um, it is it is obviously great if you're near a wall or like a podium or like a, mm -hmm. or a pillar or something. Even a little like a ballast that might be uh, knee height. If it's at least high enough to to rest your knee against on, you're even better if you can rest your hip on something. But for those ones, you can get like an uninterrupted three minutes of sleep. Any other situation, like you, your body will bob and, and move a little bit. So like, remember in school, the people that would like fall asleep at the desk uh -huh. and like the head would like. I was going to say that would be me. <laughs> and well, slobber coming out my mouth. Well, there's a version of that and that doesn't go away. But when you learn how to sleep standing up, then instead of like your head completely bobbing, it, you'll almost like realize once your body just starts to sh like sway a little bit too much to the left or right. And I mean, after you've been doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, it almost becomes second nature. Like I, like I didn't train myself to do it. It just happened. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a micro napper. I don't, I very rarely ever nap anyway, but I'm one of those people. If I do nap, it's gotta be like at least an hour, but you know, like my husband, he can literally take like a 10 minute nap and he's fine. I, I'm not that way. I sleep for 10 minutes I feel worse when I wake up so. yeah I, I fluctuate between those like usually as long as I can wake up naturally it's refreshing but if if there's anything that wakes me up from it it doesn't matter if it was 10 minutes or 10 hours like it's it's almost like it was all for naught right 
Yeah, that would definitely be me. So when you when you got out of the military and you moved into like their recording studio aspect, what I mean, were you a musician or did you run the soundboards or what did you do? A, a little bit of all of it. It started with me wanting to be a musician. Um, and then it it turned into I went to this studio. I mean, I so I've been playing piano since I was like like four or five years old. Uh and oh, I want to say classically trained, but like I was I went to a piano teacher, but mm -hmm. she was like uh like the church, you know, piano player. Right. Uh, and and they she taught me classical music, but I don't know if I would consider classically trained. There was like Yorkies nipping at my ankles <laughs> and like there was a TV on in the background and someone was making soup and stuff. Um but yeah, so I, I always like playing music and I got fascinated with making music on the computer in like the early 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, I had like an early synth and some software and stuff before uh, I knew what, what I was even doing. So by the time that I got into the military and on the way out, there was a little bit of overlap there where I was kind of moonlighting. Like I'd get off of my job at the base and then drive over to the recording studio and work there until you know, two or three in the morning and then drive back on base and get up at five or six. So you can see that it, like it didn't, it wasn't as compatible with the military <laughs> lifestyle. Probably um, not so much. <laughs> and then even I, after I left the military, it was just like, I still can't keep up with it. Like I, apparently it wasn't just having to get up at five or six that was killing it. It was just like having to stay up that late mm -hmm. every night forever. I was just like this, this can't be my life. But I started wanting to be a musician and wanting to be like playing the music behind the vocalist, whatever. I don't, I don't sing or anything. Right. Um, and there was one day that, that, uh, one of the guys that owned one of the booths in the studio, he had this brand new Korg It wasn't a Korg Triton, It was a Yamaha, um, motif. It was a brand new Yamaha motif and knew and know how the hell to use it. It came with this big manual and all this, and uh, just being like a computer nerd and a, and a piano player for already like 15 years at this point, I just kind of like sat down for two hours and figured out how the thing worked and played like a little beat on it and had it all recorded. And there was people that were like paying in other booths in the recording studio, leaving their paid sessions and walking back to this back room to be like, what's this music coming out of this room? Because it was it was pretty awesome because it was like this brand new keyboard and it was like, mm -hmm. you know, it had all the bells and whistles and everything. Uh, so at, at that point, I realized that like maybe I can work here in the studio. Like maybe I'm not just a musician, you know, dicking around. Like I can actually get paid to be here. And like they should have been paying me to hook up this keyboard and better yet, right. pay me to play this music that I was just messing around with. Like I could have sold that to them. So that was the the main transition of like I went into the studio trying to be a musician and then ended up becoming like a sound engineer slash producer where then people would book the time and I'd be the guy in there recording them through Pro Tools and doing some of the initial aspects of like the the tracking and the recording, not necessarily mm -hmm. all the post-production mixing. So, but it was, yeah, it was definitely like engineering uh, sort of work that I started to get into and I liked it. I love, I love that stuff more than... Uh, making the music sometimes i kind of like just like fiddling around with frequencies and figuring out how to make things blend i'm not a tech person so i will leave all of the tech stuff in the world to you because i <laughs> don't like it. that so how long did you end up doing the recording studio stuff um maybe five or six years i'd say and uh like it was it was getting big enough where I was having calls with Universal and trying to figure out deals with getting like major artists. I had uh, 
it's it's a cutthroat world out there. So oh, yeah. like, some of my biggest credits are ones where they were stolen from me. You know, like it's a little bittersweet where it's like, man, you got to work with so-and-so. It's like, yeah, but they also never paid me. So mm-hmm. like, it's cool that my, my name was out there. And I, I'm not going to make any specific nods out there to any artist, but like I, I was getting huge placements and doing like, as far as I could tell, the best that I could have been doing outside of like me becoming some kind of a personality like you know Hollywood musician type thing but I wanted to work behind the scenes and I was kind of hitting like the ceiling outside of working directly with you know like um, like a Britney Spears level artist I actually did record it when I moved to Orlando Uh, I was working at Transcontinental Studios and that was this next big step I was like this is huge because Britney Spears literally was recording in the room right next to me at one point Um, but uh, as fate would have it the guy that ran transcontinental studios was a guy named lou perlman and he was the one that was behind i think like the backstreet boys and o-town and a few of these other ones but mm-hmm. he was the one that was like diddling the, the or like trying to like diddle all the boy bands and mm-hmm. then he did all this like tax evasion stuff so right. literally right as i'm i'm recording and i'm like man this is crazy this is exactly where i wanted to be transcontinental i was working with some of the artists that i grew up listening to and then the dude that owns the studio that I'm working at uh, is like getting indicted and like, you know, he's like trying to hide <laughs> in the Bahamas from tax and they bring him in. And uh, as soon as the studio started to like ramp down a little bit, it was a huge moment for me. It was like, OK, do I do I keep like chasing this thing kind of already seeing like I didn't get to go to the C-suite. Right. I wasn't even right. in like the VIP booth, but I was like. You know, I didn't have to sit in the nosebleeds. I got a couple good places at the table a few times and it still wasn't it wasn't wetting my appetite or like it wasn't giving me the fulfillment that I really wanted from it. So I kind of made a conscious decision, like make music for me, do stuff that I want to do, maybe just make my own music for myself to listen to. And no one ever hears it. And that's kind of right. I went into that mode for about the the next 15 years or so. And it wasn't until this year, actually, I got I got a. Uh, I left my long-term job last year, like right around December. And since then I've put out like 50 new songs. So it's still in there. Like I've still got it in me. Mm-hmm. And you should never give up on an- anything like that, that is a passion for you and like a drive for you. Because, you know, like you said, even if nobody hears it, but you, you're doing what makes you happy and you get to the reward of hearing your own, your own creation. So how did you transition from that to Disney? Uh, I mean, uh, another weird one, but I, I had just got out and out of school because I, I decided after the military to just do school and I was going to do sound recording. And it was literally like as I was going to school, that's when Lou Perlman and, the, and Transcontinental all shut down and I had to make this decision. And at like a month before I went to uh, start my classes, I changed to do uh, computer animation and game design and 3D animation. And it was like a really great decision, I think, because um, I, I already was into a lot of that stuff. Um, but it gave me the opportunity to just like work on nothing but that or like put together a portfolio for two years. So at the end of like two or three years of doing that, I found this email that was in my spam folder and my my prospects at the time was were not great one of them was like working for 
like a local school, like an education board in like central Florida. Mm, and, like, yeah, it already yeah, smells pass. horrible right fast. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, I could move. I was thinking about maybe moving to Vegas or New York, like somewhere where there would be like a big production house where I could because mm -hmm. I, I knew I could secure one of those kind of gigs. Um, but uh, just as I'm going through my spam mail, I see this one. It was like a job posting and I, I followed it up and it was a company called Ideas. Uh, shout out ideas. I still love them. Uh, we, we parted on good terms actually, but, uh, I, and I didn't realize they had anything to do with Disney. I just, I mm -hmm. filled out the application. They contacted me and they were like, here's the address. I've, I've been to Disney before, but I didn't know, like just by the street address where it would be at. And, uh, this is also before I had GPS. Um, I have like a map quest, <laughs> right, so I right. Up a map quest and I printed it out, <laughs> but nowhere in there was it like, you know, this is Disney world. So anyway, so I, I drive there to my interview and I realized like, I'm actually going onto the back lot of Walt Disney world at this point. Um, and I was pretty, I mean, it was pretty cool. Like getting that experience and mm -hmm. that, that was the the short story version is, you know, I got the job because they liked the portfolio. Uh, I love the team. They loved me. And I was there for just just under 10 years, like one week or two shy of 10 years. Now, didn't they do like the original uh, Disney animation before it was like bought out or sold out to something else? Yeah, so there was an animation building that was directly next to the building I worked in. So I worked in the the Roy O. Disney post-production building, and they kind of uh like when I joined, it was it was after like the old wave of technology had kind of like left a little bit, mm -hmm. but the building I was at still had like all the old tape machines and all the old everything from like the 80s and early right. 90s. <clears throat> um, but now everything had shifted to like software and you didn't necessarily need all this big, bad equipment. But, but what we would do is that people would be really impressed. So if someone wanted to like impress the suits on like some big project they're working on, they'd have them walk around our building. Cause it's like, it was filled with like these huge rooms of equipment and it had, uh, like, I think the biggest recording studio in the entire state of Florida that could accommodate indoor a full set orchestra and it had a full foley sound stage and it was all mic'd up for like 11 one and everything um That's so it impressive. was, it was a, an absolute playground uh to live in mm -hmm. that's impressive so while you were working um on their property did you ever like run into anything weird have any weird instances or something come uh, up. Not, i mean not really I, I i dug for stories and i heard the i mean the it's not even it's a little bit tame so just spoiler alert it's a little bit of a vanilla <laughs> thing but the, the no most... one take a nap sleeping up while listening to this just saying <laughs> but the 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 most credible conspiratorial one was that people were dying more often than you would expect specifically in walt disney world i think disneyland there's a few documented cases where people died. Um, and I think there was a who framed Roger rabbit ride. And I don't know if it was Disney. I think it was Disneyland also where someone got like caught under a, the tracks and it kind of like tore them up and they got maimed from it. Ew. But in Disney world, they had this, like, you know, it like no one's ever died on property. Like we are so safe that no one has ever died here. And I remember that being, it was like, no, nah, there's been at least like seven or eight people that have died. But what they do is like if let's say that you found a dead body like this is actually what ha I, the story that i heard is that um and i won't say which ride it was but in walt disney world there was a ride that someone was found deceased 
and they just took the body and they brought it far and away enough from the like actual theme part of the aspect of the park because they there's like uh disney kind of has its own like city and its own rules and that right. was a big thing with like ron DeSantis for a while but what they did is they would take the body off the property and then declare them dead like wouldn't even look like you would see and be like that's a dead body right but they're like don't take a pulse don't don't observe let's just assume that they're sleeping until we drive them <laughs> off of walt disney world property and then we'll take a closer look and then if we see that they're dead well, they probably died at that exact moment that they drove off the property. So no one still has died at Walt Disney World. And that was kind of That's a big convenient. one for me because it, make, it makes sense, right? Like that doesn't require some weird cabal of people. It's just, it's like six different people saying, oh, I don't want that to be my day to day. And all I got to do is just drive this thing at two miles. And like, what, am I going to kill them even more than they are? Like, no. So. <laughs> That and then just like all the the tricks on how to like sneak drugs into the park and where to smoke weed and stuff like that. That was like the most illicit of all of it. Um, I asked all sorts of stories about the underground tunnels and stuff. Um, but I mean, it was just like, what do you expect a bunch of uh, horny underpaid seventeen to like early twenty year olds to be doing uh, in underground tunnels? Like, you know, horrible mm -hmm. things would happen in there. Delightful things would happen in there. Uh, all kinds of things. Well, did you see the uh, the guy recently that was naked in in the oh, ride? Did I ever? Yeah, yeah. And he was a he's a grower, not a shower. Is that we were? About? My husband and I were talking about that, and I'm like, first of all, um, where were his clothes? Because like they carried him through the park, face down with no clothes on. Where were where were his clothes? If he didn't come in the park with clothes on, how did he get in the park naked? Where did this guy come from? I was like, that, that is like the strangest story. And he's like, just decides to take a bath. Kind of like the guy at Bass Pro Shops that decided he was going to take a plunge in, in, the, in the fish tank. <laughs> I'm all for it. I think that more people should be normalizing swimming in Bass Pro. Like that's that's what the water <laughs> and the fish are there for. Mm -hmm. I think that that's that's less offensive than just pretending like there's some display that's just there to sell products. Like at least that guy was making use of nature. <laughs> well, he he quite enjoyed it, I guess. But yeah, the, Disney has like such a dark like undertone and past and there's so much like you mentioned with Ron DeSantis going after them because you know in their own little city corporation whatever you want to call it they don't have to abide by the actual state of Florida's rules and regulations and laws like they have their own governing body tax body yeah, they, i mean up until all the recently, workers live there their, their, their own police their own fire department their own right. gas stations their own everything like every and then walt disney himself wanted to take that model and like you know throw some gas on the fire and that's what epcot was supposed to have been is that epcot mm -hmm. was literally going to be like a community that you lived in it was like the, the company town where you earned the company credits mm-hmm that's interesting. Yeah, I, I did not know about Epcot, but what, because um, I know that you're like super versed in the in the Disney verse and you like to discuss Disney stuff. So tell me something that I may not have ever heard. 
uh well uh that walt disney was not a freemason but he was a demolay and not only was he a demolay but he was he was mentored by the founder of demolay which is more than just like you join the cub scouts like if someone told you hey i was in the cub scouts when i was a kid you'd be like okay yeah that's cool i know a bunch of people were in the cub scouts but if someone's like i was mentored personally by the by the people that founded the cub scouts you'd be like well okay that's actually somewhat remarkable and to take that as his upbringing um and then extrapolate that to like where what he did with his life that's to me that's interesting and i'll give you one that's even a little bit more interesting than that and that's that walt disney was allegedly made a special agent in charge an sac for the the, the fbi at the time i think it was called the fbn or um mm-hmm. but but at the time he was made the special agent in charge to kind of be like the government's insider into Hollywood or the animation side of Hollywood to mm-hmm. give him the dirt on who were the dirty commies and who were the reds and all of this. But the, the, another dynamic of him getting into that position was that they found out he had this, this animosity with his dad. There was like this really cold relationship, which again is emphasized by his time in Desmolay because that mentor becomes like a father figure to him. And, and and Walt Disney is going to sound like so poetically like it just makes sense but he had this this complex where he felt that he was actually came from like royalty like he was essentially a princess that had been kidnapped and taken away from his castle and was being forced to to grow up in this like harsh land with an evil you know stepmother esque right but in this case mm-hmm. it's his dad um so the fbi finds out about this weird dynamic that he's got these weird daddy issues and they throw some fuel in that fire and they tell him hey we found your original dad you're right um like like the dad that you grew up with is not your your birth dad your real dad is is from spanish royalty and they've got castles and they've got a whole royal lineage like you actually are a prince and you were stolen away from your kingdom and we can give you more information on this but we need you to go and get some information for us first. Like now that you know that we've got the goods and we've got, you know, that was the carrot that they would dangle a little bit. So I find that endlessly fascinating that Walt Disney himself was his own archetype of this like kidnapped princess. Well, and, and you know, we're talking about like uh, his family life and whatever. And I don't know why, but like Cruella DeVille like popped into my head. I don't know why that has anything to do with that. But all of the Disney things where the parents are are missing or they died or they're not in the picture. And even like today, any shows that are Disney related and not necessarily cartoon, but from any of the stuff that Disney conglomerate owns, it's always where there's absentee parents. There's no parents like whatsoever. So I've, any I've got a theory I'm working on that encapsulates that. And it's not an original. I'm not saying that I've, I'm the only or first that's ever made this observation. But it's the one that I think has the most meat to it. And I'm calling it the Disney proxy theory. And uh, and no, I don't have like DVDs or books for sale or anything. It's just like a thing that I've been thinking of. But And it started because I have this series called Occult Disney where we watch every of the old Disney movies in chronological order. We're all the way up to, we just did Pocahontas, which I think was 96. And we're inching our way towards the very first Toy Story. Uh, And there's so much more to come after that. But after watching literally the first, I don't know, 50 plus years of Disney feature animations, there's this 
pattern that emerges that can't be denied that is the exact one that you're describing. And it's the, the parent or the authority figure or whoever would normally be like the sense of reason for this uh, naive princess or animal or whoever, like the little child is always removed almost right off the bat. And I, and I think that a it's, it's formulaic because it works, but there's also this, this interesting, maybe nefarious element to it where imagine the context of you put your kid down in front of the TV. They're going to watch this movie for, I don't know, 70 minutes was pretty much the standard length up until modern times. Now they're mm -hmm. getting like these two, three hour movies, but right. for a, an hour and change, you put your kid down. And then if you're not sitting there watching Bambi or watching, um, you know, Beauty and the Beast or any number of these videos, you go out and you do your thing, or you might watch it in the theater that one time. But now, you know, you're doing dishes or you're folding clothes or something. You're not 100% present in that moment as this movie's going on. So the kid is completely entranced by this movie. And usually what Disney does is says, oh, here's the parent. Here's the authority figure. Here's the person that you, you look up to. Okay, now they're gone. Like we've killed them or you've been kidnapped mm -hmm. or like they've succumbed to something or you're lost. That's another popular one like you just you just get separated and now you don't know where they're at or like pinocchio uh he thinks that he's just gonna like run away for a little bit and come back and then it turns into this whole adventure but essentially what they're doing is saying okay here's the adult figure here's the authority figure okay now they're gone now you're on your own and they'll usually harp on it for a good 15 minutes or so mm -hmm. uh this is like getting lost in the woods or like you know every little shadow's jumping out and then what happens is they'll meet a little animal guide, a cute little like sidekick that typically uh, Disney always has this nature magic where the protagonist can just talk to nature and nature can talk back. Mm -hmm. uh, and no one else seems to be able to do this. So right. that also affords an opportunity though for this little commercial intellectual property demon, <laughs> Damon, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To be like, hey kids, I know that your parents are gone now. You're lost. You're, you're a little bit creeped out. Maybe you're a little bit scared. Um, literally as a child that's being put through these emotions, you know, on the screen. Now here's this thing that makes you feel better. Here it is. It's, it's Thumper. Isn't Thumper cute? Or it's Sebastian the crab. Isn't Sebastian the crab right. cute? Like now you can feel happy and like everything's good again. And let's just say, you know, the movie's over, you go away, you're back to being a family. Your kids know that you're obviously not dead. You haven't abandoned them. But the next time that they're, you're walking by in Walmart, you, you're at the drive through for the happy meal and they see Sebastian, they see Thumper. It's like, there's, there's my friend that was around when mommy left me, when, when the authority figure in my life abandoned me or I got lost. That's the thing that like helped guide me back and took care of me. And the amount of power that now Thumper the rabbit or Sebastian or fill in any of these sidekicks has, mm -hmm. that's that weaponized nostalgia. Like now they're going to sell you a car in 40 years, right? Now, right. now they're going to like make it so that when you have kids, you're going to buy the toothpaste that has Thumper on it instead of the toothpaste that has some other brand that you hadn't become, you know, like a, a built an affinity towards. Right. And I think that at a certain point, it might've just been inherently part of like good storytelling or just like a, like a shortcut to do the beats. But I think at least when you get to the 90s, there's like a formula. They're like, okay, we kill this character here. We introduce this character immediately after that one's dead. And when we do that, we've already got the team working on a coordinated system of action figures and lunchboxes and everything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it has to be the character they see after the parents die. Like, 
I guarantee you that that conversation happened somewhere in a room on Disney property. I'm sure it did. And the weird thing to me is, you know, Walt Disney seemed like he had a little touch of mental illness, um, like on a, on a very deep level, you know, and the relationship with his parents that he had, even with his mom, his relationship with his mom was strange. Because well, he thought he had been kidnapped from royalty and that these were his, his evil stepmother and his evil stepfather, essentially. Mm -hmm. But even like to, to, think and have the you know like thinking about your own life and you're like i'm an animator so i'm gonna make my whole entire movie studio about killing off my parents or about my parents <laughs> disappearing i mean does that not strike you as like very maybe although he, he was a he was adopting stories that were way darker than the the things that he was putting on the film like all mm -hmm. of the grim story tales right uh right. jungle book little mermaid if you read the original source material for little mermaid it's it's not about uh true love and romance and finding it's because mermaids were these soulless homunculi that when they died they literally just went back into the earth and there was no soul there was no heaven there was there was nothing beyond that you just turn into worm food and an algae, right? But the Little Mermaid sees humans and they're like, oh, humans have a spirit that can connect to this God and that they have this life that happens after this, this material plane. So the whole story of Little Mermaid was her trying to steal the soul because uh, you had two ways. You could either marry someone and, and if they fell in love with you, then they would like bestow a soul on you too. But it doesn't work out for Ariel in the original story by um, uh, Christian, I think. And at the very end, her family's convincing her, like, just go kill him. Just go kill him and take his soul that way. Or if you kill him and can't take his soul, at least he also has to die. And it's like like all those dark aspects. I feel like if Walt Disney had accurately reproduced the real stories that he was working with, he'd get mm -hmm. way more flack than he does now. If anything, he kind of toned a lot of that stuff down so that you could make a buck off of it. Yeah, because, you know, Ariel turned into this, you know, precious character or whatever and ursula the sea witch was like the one that was trying to steal souls and you know using the siren of course that's from that that new um interesting little mermaid movie remake that they did i haven't seen it yet i'm actually oh wow to yeah and so like she puts like this um curse of a siren or whatever in this necklace or whatever and so this the uh sea witch like wears this and then turns into this really pretty princess and well and that, that's the watered she down was, version because she was just trying to steal soul well it's, so. it's yeah well it's it's the same plot line but in the in the original little mermaid like the good character that we know from disney ariel it's not it's not, or not her name in the hans christian Anderson, but mm -hmm. that version of ariel she's kind of after a human soul so she's kind of the bad person right mm -hmm. and then in the modern remake they they change that around so that they can sell the happy meals because you can't sell a happy meal if they're trying to steal your soul so now <laughs> she has her soul soul in but they can't get that close to the occult symbolism of the original story and not because they're hiding it i think it just might have triggered too many people like if it was literally the soul so it becomes her voice now she can't speak Right, uh, and she can't sing, and she's got this beautiful voice, and every, mm -hmm. anyone that contains the voice 
can transform into this beautiful creature. Right. I mean, they're just they're they're making the the like kids meal chicken nugget version of the story. It's like okay, little kid, you know, if you lose your voice and your voice turns into this like orb that I can keep and put it in my pocket. Like you understand that, but they are a million percent talking about souls. Like they're mm-hmm. like, she's a soul trafficker. Essentially. That's what Ursula is. Mm-hmm. And Ariel isn't even necessarily like the good girl that gets like caught up in this. She's kind of like the, the, like the bad, like the, um, the gangster that's going out to like mug somebody and like, it doesn't <laughs> go well for them in the process. <laughs> I think we should totally redo it and she should be a thug. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of open domain already. Like you just can't do Ariel specifically, but anyone can remake Little Mermaid and she should they should have like a like an adult version where she's just mm-hmm. going out and like taking soul. She's essentially a black widow. I think that would be a lot better than um most of the remake stuff that they do nowadays. Not not it, like all the all the Disney movies or even like the superhero stuff. It's like remakes of remakes of remakes. And I think the more they remake something, the worse they get. Yeah. And there's nothing um, creative or new coming out. It seems like, you know, and there'll be like a new TV series or something, but it's, basically the exact same story as something else the studio released like years ago just with different characters and you know whatever but it's the exact same storyline i mean this this is almost a criticism as old as time itself Mm because if you look at like joseph campbell and the power of myth and the hero of a thousand faces and the just the story of apollo and dionysus and jesus Mm and i mean those are kind of just like this this you know multiple millennial uh long like thousands and thousands of years of versions of hollywood just rebooting the same movie over and over yeah i don't understand it like whatsoever so how did you get interested in like the animation side of things like to do um like your uh coloring book and all of those kind of things like how did that come about that was that was really just uh, an interstitial where I still wanted to do an animation. I want to do a full on cartoon, like twenty minute long, um, you know, like a Saturday morning cartoon style thing. And uh, without a full team and a full pocketbook to fund that team, uh, a lot of the time it's like, okay, well, I can sit down and draw a picture on a piece of paper. Like I can do that part, you know, for free. And it might take me eight, ten, twenty hours for a page, but I can do that. So that's kind of where it started. And then I, I, after a long period of time, I was like, okay, now I've got a comic. It took me three years to get it, but now I've got the comic book. Um, but it was like, this isn't scalable to take three years and have one book and sell it for $4 or something. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, like you can't recoup, you know, three years worth of time unless it's selling it by like the millions or something. Right. Um, so it was, then it became of like, okay, I, I like certain aspects of this. Like, the whole book, maybe I wasn't happy with it, but man, certain panels really popped. And what is it about this panel, this page that I like the most? And that sort of evolved into like, well, if that panel can tell like the whole story, like if, if I just saw that panel and I didn't even read the rest of the page, do I still get the idea? And if I can do that, like now I can take that panel up instead of worrying about telling the whole story over 20 pages, let's try telling a whole story in one image. 
mm-hmm. that just turns into um, pinups and stickers and uh, in some cases coloring books. The coloring book was the natural evolution of this because I just had so many black and white artwork from all the comic books but it's just because you've got it in black and white doesn't magically make it like fun to color in Mm -hmm. um so that was just another extra thing where it's like i i know that i'm leaving a little bit on the table because i talk about cryptids and i talk about like all these conspiratorial things and there was a um like the adult coloring book therapy sort of started, and Mm -hmm. i'm all into it i love i think it's a great idea just like you put a movie on or something or like ambient music and you're just coloring and you don't care about making it look good Mm -hmm. um so i was just thinking man how cool would it be if someone was to like be doing their coloring therapy where you're just staring at something for two hours but they're staring at like the face of you know david ike while they're coloring in um Mm -hmm. and then i was like well what if they were staring at i don't know jacob rothschild for for two or three hours that they were coloring in now what if they're staring at like you know moloch but moloch is like ronald mcdonald and it just kind of evolved into like a funny thing that was like oh wouldn't it be funny if there was like a single coloring book page that did this and after i saw one or two i was like okay this has to be a real thing with like multiple pages and a full product and and at that moment specifically with the coloring books it was almost like and not in a, I guess maybe in a little bit of an ego way. I hope it doesn't sound like an, an egotistical way, but it was like, if, if I'm not the one to make a coloring book, that's got Manly Palmer Hall and Heaven's Gate and Moloch and Ball and, you know, um, and Jeff Bezos in it, like who else is going to make that? I don't Nobody. see anybody talking <laughs> about doing that. Uh, and for a good reason, it's not necessarily a big, uh, it doesn't print money. Like I wouldn't say it's the most popular products on the planet, but I love them. I think that they should exist. And again, it was like, I feel like I'm almost doing a service. Like I here think it that's is. so that's so creative though, that you came up with that idea to do that. So like when you were growing up, were you really into art and doodling on stuff? And well, you, you asked if I got in trouble in schools because I was I was doodling almost all the time. Like oh, I've actually got my my parents just recently got into that phase where they're like dropping off like all of the stuff that they uh, collected Six over the years. years. <laughs> and now it's just like, here's all your old notebooks and yearbooks and like all the things that you've ever drawn. Um, and I'm I'm realizing now that, yeah, to an outside observer in class, the teacher probably just saw this kid just like sketching in his book all day long and never paying attention but I've, i also realized later on I, I took some nlp courses from richard bandler uh neuro-linguistic programming but and that one's very markety salesy crap but there was one thing in there that really stood out to me when they broke down this concept of what they call um kinetic learning or ki- kinesthetic learning mm-hmm. and it's and they were saying that like some people can't retain information unless they're like they feel something. something. Yes. And it and and to me it was like, oh, I was just doodling, but really it was just the like maybe it's just as simple as the vibration of feeling right. the pencil moving across paper as I hear something. It mm-hmm. just helped it lock in more. But what teacher out there is gonna sit down and be like, Oh, you must be a kinesthetic learner? I've heard of right. this neurolinguistic. They're just like, pay attention, you know, <laughs> like put your put your pencil down. We're not taking notes now, you know, listen to the lecture. So, well, and yeah. that's funny because there's it's a very unique quality to to have to be that kind of person. Um, but there are people like that where they have to listen to music or they have to write or they have to do something with their hands, even if it's like mold clay or something, 
to understand, like you can read or listen to an audio book or whatever, but you have to be doing something with your hands as well. And it, it translates for you and, and you're, they absorb more when they do that. And if they weren't doing so, if they weren't using their hands or touch sensation in any manner, they couldn't grasp the actual learning part. And, and honestly, that's what makes the coloring book so special to me. Cause like from, from another outside observer, you're like, oh, it's a silly coloring book. And they've got, you know, memes of Mark Zuckerberg and barbecue sauce in it. Ha ha. How funny. But to a, someone that realized how important kinesthetic learning was, it really is like, no, if, if you're another kinesthetic learner out there and you're mm -hmm. doing this adult coloring book, just the fact that you're coloring in Manly Palmer Hall, and it's not just the portrait. It's got like mm -hmm. little, you know, symbols and nods to all the day. Like I've got a one of there of Ted Gunderson, who's the one. Like who has a coloring book of Ted Gunderson? But Ted Gunderson, who started unveiling some of like the original Satanic Panic stuff, uh, he was. I think he worked for the FBI at some point. Mm -hmm. right. And in his coloring book page, we've got all these symbols that reference the very first case that brought him in when he was hired to do some investigative work for this like abusive military couple. But like all those little symbols are in there and baked in. And if, and if you sit there and you color it in your kinesthetic learner, like you're learning it, even though like no one's saying anything and there's no audio or text to any of it. Like now you'll just inherently realize, Oh, Ted Gunderson and this like chick and this guy that's got the military garb on. And I don't know. I, I think that's way more important or at least noble than like, haha, we just killed your parents. Okay, here's Thumper. Buy the, the lunchbox. Right. And it is because um, like you were talking about the adult coloring books, that is actually um, highly recommended for people who need like trauma therapy, um, you know, or uh, kids with like learning disabilities or whatever. Coloring therapy is a thing that is widely used in in the therapy world and you know literally suggested all the time so if you can tie those things together where they can learn and also do something therapeutic at the same time that is a super impressive idea so there's kudos a, to you for that and there's a really cool project that i worked on at disney and i'm pretty sure it's far away enough that i'm not like not under nda i don't know come at me bro if if i'm still under nda but we uh we were hired by darpa um or funding from darpa mm -hmm. at disney to create right. something that would help uh therapy with ex-military veterans that had ptsd right and uh, like at this time i was i was you know the only person in our department that was a veteran and um was like into comic books and all this stuff and the, mm -hmm. the essentially the whole premise was that people that had severe cases of ptsd like so bad that right. if you just ask them to talk about it they would tremble and shake and go into a disassociative state like right not they didn't get grumpy like they literally would check out and could even become violent and like right. dangerous to like their children um and it, and it was it was insane because like you talk to some of these um, people that had this level of PTSD and it's like they love their family and they love their kids and they don't want to do anything to hurt them. But it was like there's like a button you can just press on them that's mm -hmm. like hurt everything around me mode. Um, and the the military and like all of the, the post-release military, if they even gave half a shit about you, which they don't. But right. um, the they even the therapy there was like we don't really know what to do outside of 
experimental drugs or just like I was just going to say drugs. Yeah. Well, that's the Rockefeller solution, everything. Right. Um, but but our our department actually and in, in DARPA invested enough in it because they saw merit to it was that we had this iPad had just come out. This is like 2012, maybe not even that late. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this concept of like we created this blank comic book that just had panels and you would touch a panel and then you would say like okay what room is this is it a garage is it a living room is it a bedroom is it out in the desert is it inside a humvee Mm -hmm. you just had all these different options and that's all it was at first is that you could kind of like tell your story just based on the environment that you were in no characters no dialogue nothing and that would at least help um, these veterans with ptsd that, that couldn't access these memories any other way slowly kind of put together like okay now i remember these general sequence of events because it's completely depersonalized it's just like what was the color of the sky what was the color of the ground was it sand was it stone you know like Mm -hmm. things that didn't necessarily connect and once you got them that far in then you could be okay now we can start adding people to each of these panels is there a woman in this panel is it two men um are they military are they civilian and then slowly over time, you could get them to recreate these incredibly traumatic experiences. And even more importantly, is that they could do it with an iPad in private in their room somewhere. They didn't have to go to a therapy center. They didn't have to do it online um, where like maybe they were logging in and saving it. And this was showing incredible progress because now these people that couldn't even access it if they wanted to, there was like this slow way of like holding their hand and saying like, here's a, a non damaging way hopefully (laughs) to like Mm -hmm. relive these things and maybe integrate it back into the hole so that you don't have these weird missing pieces of you that cause you to black out and lash out at people right so so like the the use of a comic book medium to me is more than just you know making funny memes and poking fun at stuff and like having explosions go off there really is something that i feel is way deeper to it and i and I don't get woo woo where it's like it's a it's a magical sigil and it's, you know, it's affecting uh, mm-hmm. the energy and the vibrations of the universe. But I do think that there's something magical in the way that like comic books, more than any other medium you can even think of, they allow you to fill in the story more like a book or a novel. They're describing to you like the exact eye color, right. what you're like, supposed to see. And, and 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 they very rarely leave stuff out like even in a book or like a tv show or a movie people they'll they'll point out the plot gaps they'll be like well what happened here in a comic book there's obviously you can fall victim to plot gaps but this concept of like between the panels think like you know things are happening between those panels and you're just like oh they must have walked and they must have like went from the living room and now they're in the store like mm-hmm. something must have happened there and you can always go back and be like oh and by the way here's what happened between those two panels it's very hard to do that move like you can got that tarantino sort of thing where like right you start yeah. at the end uh, it gets jumpy though and it's hard to follow the comic mm-hmm. book it's completely natural because it's it's that's how that you're interpreting it and then there's this extra mechanic of the page turn and the page turn to normal person they're just like oh yeah that's because they ran out of space and you had to go the next but really that's instead of just like little things happening between panels when you do a page turn big things can happen like you know as you're writing one when the reader turns that page they may not realize it but like they just killed like a hundred thousand people right like mm-hmm. that's like a bomb just went off in the story when they turn that page um and that's a little bit more abstract where they don't realize it but you can make things like on one panel you know you've got the comic book open in front of you and this doesn't work digitally works only on like the paper material right. version and you've got this like beautiful landscape or it's a nice city 
you turn the page and now it's all decimated mm -hmm. and in order to to and you get what happened right you're just like oh my god like everyone was just wiped out mm -hmm. to recreate that as a movie or in a tv show you've got to have a budget like you're not just going to show a picture and then another picture and people accept that right. in a comic book it's acceptable and it works even better than in the movies and tv because the person's brain is like actively putting together what happened between right. those two and we've gotten to a point where almost every other medium it's like expected that you see like every grain of dust i want to see where the missile hit the building and like how like that's almost the accepted part of it and mm -hmm. there's more freedom in comics yeah and see i i completely agree with you on that and i think even a lot of the movies or or tv shows or whatever that are out nowadays they don't transition things really well or it'll end in a particular spot, like if it's in a series or something, and then the next episode will pick up and it's like you've skipped something and you're like, did I miss like an episode or, or something? Because what now we're like 20 years down the road or something and all this stuff is different. Like some and, of and the transitions not, not a convenient are way to like mm -hmm. check back on it, like in a comic book. You can just like flip back to the pages and like, oh, wow, I didn't notice that detail and then go back. You mm -hmm. can't necessarily do that in a book as much. A book, it's kind mm -hmm. of a pain to like go back four pages and reread and see right. if you missed it. TV show, movie where you're like rewinding and pausing and playing again. Again, like none, none of those mediums just cater as well to that, that ability to explore at your own pace uh, mm -hmm. as well as comics do. I think that's so, uh, I like I said, I'm... I am so glad that you are doing this because your your creativity should never be stifled in any manner. And what you're doing, I think, is not only like therapeutic for you, but it's definitely going to be for your readers as well. And and tying everything that you have. You have so many skills. It's impressive. So I just want you to know Jack that. of all trades, master and none. That's the secret. <laughs> I'm a jack of all kinds of trades too, but not not so much uh, <clears throat> any well, kind here, of stuff. Like that but you know what? If the electricity goes out, I'm I'm fairly uh, useless. Like I probably won't be able to help <laughs> you fix the generator or change the tire on your car. But the second that the the computers are running again, like I can keep you entertained and I can consolidate information. Like I can track it down and categorize it and uh, break it down. But I, I can't actually like remove the compressor from the refrigerator and fix it for you. Like we got to call uh, no, like, I a could, real man. To I do could that. probably do that stuff way better than tech things. It's an even trade. <laughs> oh my God. Tech things irritate me so bad. Like before we got on today, like the computer wasn't recognizing the printer and I'm like doing all these things and nothing's working. And I told my <laughs> husband, I'm like, you need to take a look at it because I'm starting to grow horns and I'm going to step outside for a minute so I don't lose my marbles. I got to say, even, like, even being fluent in tech, that never goes away. Like, oh my God. He's like, the, he can, he's like, did you try this? And I'm like, yes. And he'll do the exact same thing and it works. Yeah. And I can try it 50 times and it doesn't do anything. But give me a, a toolbox and something that needs fixed. I can do that. I'm handy that way, but I can't do what you do. No. Mm -mm. 
I will take trade. a pass. Uh, I, I will be happy to provide tech services in exchange for like actual like life and survival skills. <laughs> I, I could do that. I I think that I would do well on like naked and afraid. Have you ever seen that? I have, yeah. I, yeah I, I walk, not that uh, I would want to be alone. not that I yeah, I like that one too. Not that I would want to be naked somewhere, but I could definitely like start a fire and hunt and stuff like You're that. You're like, I'm yeah. not into the naked part. I'm into the afraid part. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with me? I don't know. So, my dear, it was such a pleasure and such an honor getting to know you better and having the listeners get to know you better. Where can they find all of your fabulous content at? The main hub is paranoidamerican.com and I'm trying to be on as many platforms as I can with just at paranoid American or in Twitter's case, because they won't let, they won't uh, release that final N from jail. It's just paranoid America. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the big one. Um, I'm making the rounds a little bit. I've got a few different podcasts. One that we talked about a little bit was occult Disney is one that I've been doing for the last year or so. Uh, I think we're like 35 episodes deep into it. We just did Goofy Movie and Pocahontas. I've got another podcast that I do with guests called Paranoid Programming. And this is where if somebody, I often I'll get emails and messages like, hey, can you help me make a logo? Or can you help me do like a song? Or can you help me mm -hmm. uh, make like a video intro? And I was doing it so often, kind of like behind the scenes. And it's like, people would get this great content, but I wouldn't have any anything to show for it aside from right. maybe like a tag. So now um, if someone asked me for help with anything like that, I'm like, yeah, but we'll just jump onto a stream or record it so that you've got a reference and the rest of the world's got a reference to like do it themselves the next time. So mm -hmm. that's a show called Paranoid Programming where I really try to take like completely non-technical people, wink, wink, uh, someone like Janet maybe, <laughs> um, that, that wants to do something that feels, you know, overwhelming, like, oh, man, I would love to make a, a video of Elon Musk, you know, choking on a pizza or something. I don't know. Um, or I would love to make a parody song that, you know, had my podcast name in it and all this. Like, I want to help you do that and we'll do it together and you'll leave. And I, I actually just did one with Heidi. Heidi uh, told me a couple days ago. <laughs> and we, we in 60 minutes, we started from a blank canvas and Based on her her input only, we ended up with a really cool logo that I think was something that we mm -hmm. can continue to build on. So that's another big one. I've got a whole bunch of other ones, but yeah, paranoidamerican.com is where you can find me and all my crazy inventions and comics and books. And I got a game coming out this year. There's all oh, kinds of stuff cool. happening. Like a, as in a board game or as in a like, video, a, like a, a video, video game? It'll be on Steam. It'll be for PC and uh, mobile. And it takes over two years of research that I did into Freemasonry and Satanism in the 19, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. A lot of it based on research into Albert Pike, Leo Taxel, mm -hmm. um, some of like the early, the early foundings of Eastern star and Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. And I took all that and I was like, this is going to be too heavy for a comic book. And I don't want to make it a book because books are boring uh, and they put me to sleep. But so, you and me both. I'm. I am not one of those people that can pictures. sit down and read books nonstop. Can't do it. So I I can read reference books, but I do not read fiction books. And yeah, maybe to my own detriment, I would like to, but they just put me to sleep immediately. I would um, rather like 
if I'm interested in something, like pick a topic and research it, I cannot sit down and dedicate that much time to read a book. I just can't. (laughs) Like I have, I have ADD if I tried to read a really long book, I can't do it. Mm -mm. Unless I'm like trapped in an airport. That's the only times I can remember reading like, like long novels. Mm -hmm. Um, But so uh, the game is called Lucifer lives in lower Manhattan. And it's about how high society was actually the ones that were perpetuating Satanism. It wasn't like a low class thing that came from like the witches and the bumpkins and the pagans. Right. right. Uh, This was the, the people that had the resources and the free time and the expendable income to buy books that were thousands of dollars mm-hmm. uh, in their times money, right? Like we're talking way more expensive now. Right. Absolutely. If you, had, if you had that kind of free time and money to be like looking into Luciferianism and, and medieval homunculi, right? Like that was high society. This wasn't just like some, some uh, guy on the street that was going to mug you and for food or anything. Right. So the game basically takes all that research and how Satanism leaks into Hollywood, how it leaks into high society in New York. And uh, yeah, so that, that's just another form of like, how can I take this research that I think is important and put it into a new medium where no one's ever seen it before. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's fantastic. Now, did you do like most of the video game yourself? I start, it's been like a long process. So the first couple iterations, I was doing it myself. Uh, but then like, you know, uh, I'd get like a bunch of orders for a comic in or someone would want to do like a, a big podcast or like, mm-hmm. you know, pull me into some project. And I was quickly realizing just like when I started out doing animation and artwork, like I don't have eight to 10 hours to spend on this one page anymore. There's right. so much more that I can get done in 10 hours. So Mm -hmm. now I just, I pretty much delegate it all to people that I've been working with for, you know, over a decade in some cases Mm -hmm. and have got just like a really solid team. So no, for the video game, I did, um, all the conceptualization, all the research and like the initial writing, uh, I did like a, a rough kind of like early version of it that I then passed off to a programmer and had Mm -hmm. them do it, which is very weird situation for me because like when i was at disney for 10 years i was the one doing all of the actual work and i had some manager that was breathing down my neck to like delegate it to me and like now i'm the the manager that's like i'm not breathing down anyone's neck but like it's weird giving up that control but also being like oh man like i would have done it this way but just hands off like you're working smarter not harder now (laughs) hopefully it doesn't it doesn't always feel like that but i hope so Oh, I could not do that either because mm-hmm. programming language and stuff, that's that's not my thing. Mm-mm. See, I nope. find it easier to talk to computers than the people because computers are more consistent <laughs> than people are. Like like a like a outside of when like the modem just won't turn on, right? But mm-hmm. for the most part, if you ask the computer the same thing a hundred times, you're gonna get the same result a hundred times, if not something's broken. But with a person like the person would be broken if you got the same result a hundred times. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's and I don't like uh, I don't think I'm autistic or anything because I understand facial expressions and social cues, but I do feel that I just always had a much easier time explaining myself to a computer and and asking it for what I wanted and having a successful communication with it where like we both understood each other. No one got their feelings hurt. Like, like <laughs> I don't know. Like, there, was, there was just something that was just always so appealing to me that I can't shake. See, I'm Sarah that Connor way. With, not like me. I'm that way with animals. I would 
rather talk to animals than most people. And I know that sounds terrible, but um, people are so emotionally unpredictable that, you know, you can say like the simplest thing to somebody and they, depending on what their mood is, that moment is dictates their response. Animals aren't that way. So it'd be great if mood rings worked and everyone just had like a mood ring on and all the time. Right. That was, <laughs> Hey, that was big when I was a little kid. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a 70s baby. So, uh, we had mood rings and pet rocks and chia pet stuff and all kinds of weird stuff. It never worked. The chia pets. <laughs> the other big lie too were the sea monkeys. I've, I still haven't recovered yes. from the, the lies mm -hmm. of sea monkeys. Yep. Now the pet rock thing. I don't know why that was a deal, but it would come in like this little, like, box that looked like a house, and it had a little leash that you put on the rock and the whole nine yards and whatever. And I, I don't know why that was a big thing, but it was. So. I think it's genius. And and how dumb were people's parents to be like, oh my gosh, I bought you something. Here's a here's a present for you, Timmy. Here's a pet rock. <laughs> see, I, that's an interesting take though, because I can see it would be fun to buy and gift a pet rock, but to be the receiver of a gift right. of a pet rock. Was anyone out there buying pet rocks for themselves, or was it just a tchotchke thing that you would like buy for someone else? You would buy it for somebody else. They were, it was like people would give them as presents and stuff at birthday parties. I feel like chia pets are like that too. Like who buys yeah. themselves a chia pet? <laughs> like, I guess they're out there, but they're, they're psychopaths. <laughs> and they've got bodies under the floorboards. I think I would make a good chia pet with my hair. <laughs> if anybody wants to do that, you could make a Janet chia pet. That would be great. Send me the extra money for marketing though. Anyways. And it, it was such a pleasure to have you on and to get to know you better. And I hope um, that you are not afraid to talk to me now. <laughs> that you are uh, like, consider me like a, another computer that you can speak to because what you see is what you get. And I'm always the same. I so, appreciate that. No, you're awesome, Janet. This is awesome talking to you. Just like the last time we talked, it was. Uh, I don't know. It, it it feels like we've at least been uh, like co-workers for a few years right. at that level. Like I've known you for, for a while. Yeah, absolutely. It's comfortable. So like we pass each other on the hallway. We're amicable. Like I've like, you know what I mean? I would high five you. Definitely. Or <laughs> hug you. That. I'm a hugger. So that probably would happen. And then you might sue me for se sexual harassment. So, you know. <laughs> How much money your HR department have? <laughs> yeah, that would that would that would be a big problem uh, having me in in that kind of thing where I had to be a greeter or something at Walmart because I'd have to like hug people all the time. <laughs> Bad idea. That might be the only service that we have to offer the world pretty soon, though. Is just right? like. Welcome to Walmart. Would you like your physical interaction with a human being on the way in and out? And then exactly. Otherwise, it's just, you know, we're all robots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they are pushing that that VR, whatever. It's a new, new thing that they're suggesting that you wear it all of the time, not just when you're game playing. But I was like, I think I'll take a pass on that one. 
so I, mean, I feel like we're all kind of doing that already though because if you've got a phone in your pocket like at what point like right if, I, if i've got my phone down here in my pocket and it can go off at any time and let me know if like there's some alert i need to know like if i put it up here on my shoulder is it is it creepy yet tell me when it's tell me when it starts getting creepy is it is it creepy now? Is it is it just because it went from my shoulder to here? Because that's really all that's going to happen is that your phone's going to become transparent, and you're just going to be able to put it like your glasses yeah, will be your phone. Yeah, that's so weird. Like I, I'm so old school. Like I like pen and paper. You know, I still like have filing folders and whatnot. I'll write show notes or whatever, or write somebody a note or or something. I'm so like old school I, and I like it that way because I think tech has spoiled a lot of things. Yes, it's made some things easier, but it's also complicated a lot in my lifetime. So anyways, but it was a beautiful time talking to you today. I sincerely appreciate it. So everyone, make sure that you go and follow him um, at paranoidamerican.com. Check out all of his stuff. Um, he's got a listing on there for the comic books and action figure and all of the goodies that you can get. Make sure you go like, subscribe, share, comment, download his show. Um, all of the podcasts that are available and make sure you drop him a pleasant review because we're lacking in that a lot of times. So make sure you do that. And for me and for Paranoid American, we will see you next time and have a great one. See ya.